you know, your marketplace becomes a little smaller than uh, normal. You're, you're sort of looking internally at um, your partners um, and you have to wear multiple hats, right? You're, you know, from a, an ERISA standpoint and a plan sponsor, you're always trying to make sure you're making decisions on behalf of the employees and the members, um, but you're also trying to do the right thing for the business. Welcome to Broken Benefits. I'm your host, Lee Lewis, and this is a podcast where we learn from top employer experts on how to fix our broken benefits to save lives, save dollars, and save your talent. All right, welcome everyone to Broken Benefits. Uh, as I said, your host, Lee Lewis. So excited about today's guest. We are joined today by Candace Jodis. She is the former VP of Benefits and Total Rewards over at uh, CVS Health and Aetna and CVS Aetna. And uh, she brings over 20 years experience managing the benefits of a, of a health plan with over 300,000 people, expenditures in excess of $4 billion annually for the domestic and, and international uh, exposure and accounts. And uh, such a pleasure to be able to bring you uh, here to the show, Candice. Uh, so excited to get into it today. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Lee. It's great to see you. Uh, very much my pleasure. So just starting off, wanted to kind of get a chance to, to meet you a little bit more. What what are some of the, uh, you know, for somebody who manages benefits at like a regular company, say a manufacturer, retailer, how is it different to manage benefits inside of a PBM or a carrier or both? Sure. Yeah. And you know what, for perspective, I actually started out at CVS uh, retail before we had any healthcare. And um, so I, I have a little bit of experience at the same company before yeah. the complications, but yeah, I mean, what's unique is that, um, you know, your marketplace becomes a little smaller than uh, normal. You're, you're sort of looking internally at um, your partners um, and you have to wear multiple hats, right? You're, you know, from a, an ERISA standpoint and a plan sponsor, you're always trying to make sure you're making decisions on behalf of the employees and the members. Um, but you're also trying to do the right thing for the business. So there are a lot of complications that you need to think about, um, you're also negotiating with your peers. So, um, you know, that can be interesting and frustrating at the same time. And, you know, just educating people. There's, there's always new people that come into, you know, the product organizations at the different businesses that we uh, work with, and we have to educate them on the requirements around ERISA and, you know, prohibited transactions and those types of things within ERISA. So it can be really interesting, but it also can be pretty limiting because, you know, I was sort of used to being able to go out to the marketplace and, you know, play TPA off of TPA and, you know, it starts mm. to sort of shrink down when you're, you know, you're sort of utilizing and you can say that that's a positive thing, right? Because at least you can focus on you know, one uh, vendor partner, but you lose a little bit of the leverage, I guess is what I'd like to say about that. Everyone now just a quick word from today's sponsor. Lemonade for 50 cents for a good cause. This situation seems terrible, right? Well, what if I told you it actually happened in the United States in 2021? These are the families of people who work for companies just like yours. Give your employees 100% medical coverage with Catalyze Health. Oh yeah, I can imagine. It's, I mean, they know your your vendor partner knows they're not going to be, you know, at risk of having a contract termination because you'd be terminating yourself in a sense. And so exactly. Yeah, we count how, on we count on other clients to do some of the heavy lifting there and then we get to reap the benefits. So it, it's really interesting. You know, we I, I was part of a lot of the client advisory councils for both Caremark and Aetna. And it mm. really helped me to meet with other, you know, peers that were utilizing those services and hear some of the things that they were pushing you know, our vendor partner, who is also my internal company to do. And even though we had the same concerns, it was more widely listened to when there was maybe risk of moving the business. I think a lot of people would be wondering, do, if you are a carrier, if you are a PBM, are your contracts 
especially everything around confidential data and, and the challenges of getting data, does that all, you know, do, do those sort of carry over almost by force of habit to you or, or do you get kind of a different arrangement? Yeah, I mean, we negotiate contracts with ourselves. Um, you know, it's always interesting when we're negotiating and we've got three parties at the table, but we're all internal and there's different legal departments in each of, each of the business units. So I would say that outside of the fact that um, we're not actually going out and doing an RFP or an RFI, mm -hmm. we treat the, the relationship just like we would if it was an external vendor. I mean, we, we really needed to from an ERISA standpoint. So we really make sure that we go through that process. You know, there are some rules around making sure, you know, there's no profit margin and we're very um, careful about, you know, um, making sure all those terms are, are adhered to. But everything else, you know, compliance wise, um, all of the, as a matter of fact, I think actually some of the, you know, the bars that we needed to reach are probably higher when you're dealing with your internal parties than you would externally. But yeah, it looks very much the same. We still have to go through that whole RFP, have procurement involved, negotiation process, et cetera, even when it's our own company. Interesting. If, you know, I have to wonder, there's a lot of employers right now, especially in the face of CAA with the new transparency requirements, uh, who are going to be, oh, I guess, trying to get, you know, more transparency and, and data and everything to be to be made available to them. Uh, what would you say are the, the biggest areas that an employer ought to be focused on in terms of, of getting data? Like where what are the data types and sources that an employer ought to most look for from the PBM or carrier? Sure. Yeah. I mean, obviously the actual claims data is the key to all of this, but, you know, actually getting the, the carriers, the, the TPA, the PBM to do a lot of those analytics for you. So they're sort of turning it into the actionable insights that you need, but mm -hmm. from a transparency standpoint to the, you know, bottom line consumer, I guess just sort of weeding through all the, there's different prices. What does the consumer actually need to know to make a better decision? I mean, we've been mm -hmm. dealing with um, trying to manage price transparency for many years, right? We, you know, we put in a price right. transparency tool, um, you know, many years ago. The issue is that you just can't get members to utilize it in advance of them seeking services. So how do we actually get the TPA to go further upstream and insert this into the provider relationship. From my perspective, mm -hmm. they've got a unique position because they've got the relationship with the provider through the contract. So how yeah. do they actually allow consumers to have that before the procedure actually happens? Or maybe it's through the advocacy group that they're further upstream than now it's too late. Somebody's going to get a claim. They're going to see... Uh -huh. The pricing and maybe they'll make a different decision next time but who's going to have you know a knee surgery twice so right you know oh, knock on wood right like yeah. hopefully that never happens again but yeah where a lot of these big transactions it's one and done an employee's not going to have multiple chances to do it so how do you become an educated consumer of hip replacements right if you right. Are have one in your life Agreed. And I think we've made a lot more progress on the pharmacy side, you know, with the PBMs because, you know, we, we have to, it's, it's more of a transactional, right? The going to get your prescription and you, you know, you're looking at that pricing right away. So they've done a really nice job trying to get into the provider's offices to make sure that, you know, before you walk out of the provider office, is this drug going to be covered by my plan, you know, and with strategies like always using generics, that tends to help manage some of the, the issues that maybe step therapy and other things, um, you know, have caused in the past. But on the medical side, we still have a long way to go. I want to get some more of your advice on negotiating. So you were in a situation where you were going to be using this vendor no matter what. So your leverage of, you know, hey, I could fire you, that leverage is gone. How did you create new opportunities for leverage? knowing that the the most obvious one was not available. And maybe you could teach us that because I know I know there are a lot of employers probably watching right now who are thinking, you know, I, I I'm not gonna leave or switch my carrier. Right. But 
my carrier knows that. And so they're kind of walking all over me or it, it, it just get, it gets a lot harder and yeah. would love your advice on how you did that. Cause that was just always a reality for you and everybody knew it. Yeah, no, it, that, that's true. I mean, I think, I think one part of it is still unique to being, you know, inside of this company in that, you know, every client that is speaking to our business about potentially purchasing a product or service always asks, do you do this for your own employees? Oh, yeah. Your own employees use this. So there were a lot of, um, they they would contact me to say, we want you to come on to a finalist call. Or we want you to do a reference call. So it was very important that they had, they made us happy because right. we were sort of the living lab for you know, right. other clients. And as I said, I was part of client advisory councils. I think the business really learned to appreciate that because I was able to give them really good insight from hearing and connecting with other people who, you know, utilize the service. And I also think that, you know, if the bottom line is that the the TPA and the, the PBM, they want to do the right thing for you. They want to help you manage costs. They want to keep members healthy. So, mm -hmm. you know, if they understand they're a, a, a cog that in the wheel that needs to actually move with everything else, they will come along. Um, you know, the bottom line is, I know that we have people who say, well, you know, the, the vendor is sort of pushing back saying, you know, that's an investment on our part. You know, it's, we, we laugh because, you know, from a priority standpoint, IT resources are always, you know, scarce within every business. And when we wanted something to change that required IT resources like data integration between PBM mm -hmm. and health plan, that was a big investment by the company. And it was hard for us to get the investment until other clients really said, we demand this if we're gonna be you know, utilizing these two services. So I think it's the voice. You just need to really make sure that you know, they're vendor partners. They should be partnering in trying to achieve exactly what you're looking to do. It isn't just about making money or managing costs. There's vested interest in keeping people well. Mm, this is, that's great advice. So if I'm kind of summarizing a little bit of what I've heard, let me make sure I got it right is, yes. is first, uh, there's a lot of value that you can provide. Like, sure, maybe you weren't going to fire them, but if you were happy, you could be a reference. You could be someone to help validate what, you know, is happening. You can be an earlier customer on different programs and help be a, a partner in helping to build new product or new strategies. I think all of which that'd be very helpful for a carrier to have. Mm -hmm. The second is, is appealing to them doing the right things. Like, hey, you're a partner of mine. We're trying to keep people healthy. We're trying to do the right thing. I need you to be a, a partner as you know, you're, you're here in the wheel. Also, we've all got to turn in unison to do the right thing. And so mm -hmm. you want that. And then the, the third being is maybe working with other employers to try and find those who also want the same kinds of things. Then you can kind of come forward as a group. So it doesn't feel like a one-off request for okay. something that might be expensive. Yeah, you got it. I'd love that. If I want to talk a little bit about the living lab, mm -hmm. you had an opportunity ostensibly to see new products and new capabilities and new, mm -hmm. you know, new programs coming on board, maybe before others, mm -hmm. maybe talk us through, you know, what are, what are some of the different programs or capabilities that you tested while you were there? Sure. Yeah. Uh, lots of things. I mean, from a PBM perspective, probably all of the utilization management programs that, you know, existed, whether it be, you know, very specific to a, a particular diagnostic class or, you know, formulary management, you know, we were probably the first to, to move to um, narrowing the network. We, we talk mm. a lot about, you know, high value networks in medical, but we don't often say, you know, there's 60,000 pharmacies in the United States, why do we need all of them? Shouldn't we narrow it right. down? Maybe it's obvious to people that we asked our employees and members to use a CVS pharmacy from a retail perspective, but they, you know, most Americans had a CVS within, you know, 10 miles of their home. So why, why wouldn't we want to do that? Um, or, you know, going to generics first. Um, that was actually, interestingly, we, we waited a little bit for that. We, feared and, you know, the leadership team was a little nervous about, you know, disruption and feedback from mm -hmm. people if we went to a generics only type of formulary. So it took us a couple of years, but then once we moved, the fear 
was unfounded. People got it. They understood and they appreciated the fact that we were trying to help them save money and we had ways and solutions for them to get to the brand if they needed to. Um, so it wasn't that we made everybody jump through hoops. We had a pretty simplified process. So, so that's probably a really good example of that. Other things on the medical plan side, like um, Attain um, was a program that we, we piloted um, for Aetna um, around uh, movement and a digital app that was really successful with our employees. Mm -hmm. um, other things around clinical management, A1A, um, the internal advocacy program with Aetna, um, mm -hmm. Not that we were the first, uh, you know, employer to use it, but we were one of the early adopters. So, um, and I think mm. we we really do help the business sort of work out some of the kinks, you know, where maybe it doesn't feel like, wait, I don't know that I, if I was a customer, I wouldn't appreciate this. They can learn that through us without fear of we're going to, you know, bail. No, I love that. Could you share a little bit about maybe one or two of the of the biggest wins that you had in terms of testing new strategies? What were some areas that uh, that you tried and maybe didn't know would work well, but ended up being a huge success? Yeah, I mean, one of the biggest ones I go back to was probably 2012-ish when we moved to mm -hmm. full replacement high deductible health plan. So this is that like, be careful what you wish for. It was successful in one way. And then, you know, we had to learn 10 years later, maybe not all that successful in other ways. So, right, um, right, right. but at the time, you know, we, we had actually moved to a build your own PPO plan design. I don't know if you remember that being out there, but mm -hmm. over time we kept adding, um, you know, different variations so people could buy down in the coverage. And we ended up with like 64 different combinations of PPO plans. So it was a pretty complicated mm -hmm even though we tried to make it simple. So when we decided, I mean, all the levers are gone. You're, you're, you can't shift costs anymore. We decided we were gonna move to HSO, HSA only plans. Mm -hmm. But what we did was we um, announced it as an option and we told people we're gonna be moving to full replacement in year two. So you could either get on board with us now and help us figure out how this is going to work. And, you know, we might not have everything right the first year, so you can help us with that. Or you can wait. Um, but, you know, there's actually a, an incentive for you to try it in the first year. We sort of discounted the, the contributions out of your paycheck. And we also had leaders really get out there and say, this is the movement that we need to make in the healthcare space. So move with us. We ended up with like 40% of our employees actually enrolling mm -hmm. in the first year, which was pretty good. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think we learned in that year, we needed to really make sure we were being careful about our lower wage earners in the retail stores in particular, because yeah. as much as we, you know, we, we seeded, um, the HSA, we actually had a salary based HSA seed. So hmm. the lower their salary, the more we put into their account, we wanted to make sure healthcare was affordable for everybody. But what we learned was there was a bit of a, it was a cash flow issue because we were funding the HSAs quarterly after the fact for fear that, you know, if somebody left the company, they'd walk with the money. Um, mm -hmm. But that cash flow issue was big enough for people to, to fear going to even get care. You know, even if it's wow. preventive care that was covered at 100%, they just feared that they were right. going to bill or something. So. We worked really closely with our um, HSA administrator to put in a program that allowed people to borrow against future company contributions when they had a claim. So it was HSA on demand, hmm. and that so that really helped us. You know, it learned. We learned in the first year. We implemented that, and we really worked hard on strategies to get people to understand why an HSA is truly just uh, you taking a point on the deductible first. So you're managing the checkbook. So we want you to be more thoughtful about it. And people should really think of it as a net deductible, you know, mm -hmm. what the company's giving you in your HSA, not just the deductible. But I'll tell you, Lee, uh, you know, after 10 years, we still have people who say, my plan doesn't cover anything, you know, because, mm -hmm. you know, everything goes towards the deduct deductible. So as deductible. Else, yeah, exactly. So as much as I think we managed trend, we kept trend flat for a couple of years in a row. We were able to add some additional benefits, um, you know, actually, you know, put in well-being programs, et cetera. 
until we came together with Aetna, which is where we sort of had to change our strategy a little bit because as a healthcare company now, we were coming together with a healthcare company whose healthcare plans were much richer than yeah. traditional, um, you know, retail driven plans. Um, so we needed to move to things like salary based contributions as well. And we limited how much we, um, how many plans we had, but we still had an HSA driven strategy. And, um, you know, I think because of all of the learnings that we had, mm. we were able to take those into account when we were bringing together these two very well established plans at that point um, and get some of the same results that we did initially back when we put in high deductible health plans. That's interesting. I have to ask you quickly on your on your membership. It's yeah. every single person who was on your health plan worked for an insurance carrier or for a PBM. Like that's a that's a very unique. Well, actually, so this is very interesting. You know, the CVS is made up of lots of businesses. The PBM uh, and the health insurer are two of them, but retail represented like seventy five percent of the people who are in our health plan. Okay, so like cashiers and people stocking shelves, managers, and and then they're pharmacists. Um, But that front store, because we had ten thousand stores, that was a lot of our membership. So people who are sophisticated around the healthcare space is all I'm, you know, pointing out. Yeah, these aren't healthcare experts. That that makes sense. So you had some really, some really, some very different constituencies. Fair to say within your within your health plan there. Absolutely. Yeah. Would you find that the like people who are medically trained, like your pharmacists or actuaries or things like that, would they be quieter and just more sophisticated purchasers overall, or would they be more, you know, noisy because they know the system well and maybe everyone's an expert? Yeah. I think it's a, it's probably leans more towards the latter. Um, What's interesting is that, yeah, I mean, from a pharmacist standpoint, so I go back to pre Aetna, I would say, you know, we we looked at the data to say, okay, well, pharmacists are probably going to be more sophisticated users of healthcare, and I'm not really sure we found that, but their health scores were better than other parts of the company. So you have to believe that's there's something to that. Um, but when it came to us bringing CVS and Aetna together, suddenly it wasn't just that there were healthcare experts; there were benefits experts. So everybody knew how we should be designing our programs. Uh, right. Wow. So, and so it's, you gotta be careful what you want. It's helpful to have people who understand this stuff because then they can be advocates for you, but then they also question everything that you do. Um, right. and, you always oh, understand. Yeah. and what was also interesting is they would question or complain about things that were our own company and they didn't really understand, wait, I can't, we can't change that. That's our own company. So, right. Yeah, so it's it, it's definitely a, a little bit of a mix there. I, I think overall, I would say it was very helpful to have a lot of people who were trying to do the same things that we were doing for uh, their members. So it, it became kind of a let's partner together. Um, but yeah, we got the same, we have the same complaints and the same concerns that any other company would have around this stuff because it's complicated. Oh, yeah. What, you know, before we leave this topic, what programs or strategies, uh, if if any, did you did you test out that did not work that well? And, and how did you manage the, you know, any of the fallout or the risk? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, all of the things that we we tried and maybe didn't work as well, we just, uh, we I would never say they failed. It was more of a we learned and we pivoted. So, you know, things like, you know, different well-being strategies. I think engagement was the hardest thing in our company, getting yeah. people to engage in programs. And partially that's because it was a very difficult company to um, get to people from a communication standpoint. I don't, so again, going back to what we said about retail, all of those front store employees don't have an email address for the company. So we were, mm. You know, we we counted on you know either delivering information to the home address or having them update us with their personal email address. And then when somebody gets out of work, they don't necessarily want to do work-related things. So, mm. um, you know, it was a little bit of a balancing act there. So that was probably one of our our bigger challenges is when we put out programs that we felt 
based on the data, you know, we need to have a point solution for sleep management. We need to have a well-being program for X, Y, and Z. I think, you know, we went through the same thing every other employer was going through, but getting the engagement really varied by population pretty significantly. Um, and, you know, it's, it's interesting because a lot of people would say, why do I get all these postcards at home? Sometimes right. that was the only way for us to get the message out there. And honestly, every time we sent out a postcard, we'd see an increase in engagement. So it had some positive correlation. That's um, great. I'd say it wasn't wasn't trying and failing. There were some programs that we sunset after a little mm -hmm. while because, you know, one of the things that my team found pretty early on is, you know, the sometimes the point solutions will say we want we want to price this as a per employee per month. Um, fee and it's budgetable, you know, you sort of can predict what it's going to be, you know, unless you acquire a lot of companies and your, their revenue keeps going up because your, uh, you know, your, your headcount keeps going up. But mm -hmm. we got to a point where some of these things were so isolated as far as who would actually engage that we wanted to get to a per user type of fee, like charge me for what you're doing for, the, for those employees, as opposed to this, you get this huge company of 300,000 employees and the dollar signs are, you know, everybody's excited about this huge chunk. We'll pay you for whatever you do for that case rate, essentially. Um, so I think instead of saying it failed, we tried to make modifications either to the way the contract was set up, the way the vendor was um, working with us, the way we were communicating. And that seemed to really help some of the programs that um, we would have traditionally sunset a little sooner, but we would always give it a three-year uh, runway, so to speak, because you really can't tell much after a year, right? You might not get a lot of engagement, but you need to let a little of the, the time go by. So, um, so yeah, I would say most of the time, the, the things that I think about when we talk about um, tried and failed are either point solutions, engagement, or incentive strategies. I could talk to you about that forever. You know, we, we did a penalty yeah. strategy um, where people got charged an additional $50 a month if they didn't do biometrics and a health, you know, health assessment, risk assessment each year. Right. And as we got a lot of success. I think we had 85 or 90% participation wow. because people were afraid of getting the penalty, but the PR mm -hmm. of all of that probably outweighed all of the positives we got because people were so upset that they were being required to do something. A lot of employers have a hard time knowing what people think about the benefits because in any large population there's going to be a subset who will complain no matter how good things are or regardless mm -hmm. of whether they're bad how would you measure whether or not your benefits were being appreciated and enjoyed yeah that's a great question just like everybody else we had an engagement survey and there were a couple mm -hmm. of questions on there that we would always you know the the engagement team would feed back to us to say, here's what people are saying about benefits and compensation, right? Total rewards. Mm -hmm. um, when we went through the harmonization between CVS and Aetna, we really took a step back and said, we've got to, we have to learn from these employees, like what is important to them. So we went through the right. Yeah, we went through the process of doing a conjoint analysis. So okay. sending out an employee survey and saying, you know, would you trade? three PTO days for less expensive healthcare? Um, would you want a higher 401k match versus PTO days? So they had all these combinations that they needed to choose from, and we could correlate that back to retention. Um, mm. Of course, this was prior to COVID, which threw everything for a loop, right? There's a lot of you know things right. that happened with COVID, but doing that conjoint analysis, you'd probably guess what would have come out on top, right? Pay is number one. People wanted okay. to make sure their base pay was the, the top of the line, but things like paid time off were, you know, really high at the top. So it made us understand, you know, as much as we said, we're a healthcare company, we need to make sure healthcare is as rich as possible and sure. affordable as possible. But yes, it was important. It just wasn't the top thing. So when you had trade-offs you needed to do, it was important to take that into account. And then, you know, on an ongoing basis, Lee, we did uh, listening tours. So okay. prior to annual enrollment and after annual enrollment, we would go around and do either virtual or in-person focus groups. So we would survey, we would do focus groups, and we would try to get each part of the business, which is kind of hard when you're talking about retail, because you've got to 
get them off, you know, off, off shift and um, pay them to come and do the focus group. But it was well worth our while because we heard so much rich feedback about how they interpreted what we communicated, whether they understood it, you know, and we'd talk about a program that we would spend months and months around communications and we'd hear, right. I don't know what that is. You don't know, know what it is. <laughs> I haven't heard of it. Right. Doesn't so no matter how many times it hit my inbox, I didn't read it, whatever. Exactly. So it gave us an opportunity to know where we needed to dial up from a communication standpoint, but we also got to test some of the strategies that we were thinking about doing for the following year and okay. figure out where we needed to maybe, you know, like we put in a, a hybrid plan, mm -hmm. one that's um, a high deductible health plan, but with copay. So it's not a, you know, a legal high deductible health plan with, uh, with an HSA, but we tested out that concept. And we learned a lot of people were like, oh, you don't have an HSA? I don't want that. I love my HSA. They want the really HSA. Clear. Exactly. But we yeah. would have guessed they wouldn't have said that. So, hmm. um, so I think having that feedback loop, that listening um, and really going out to employees, not just once a year with your engagement survey. And as you know, when you, somebody's asking you about engagement, that's the time to go, here are all the things I don't like. So, right. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're going to tell you probably more of that than what they do. Exactly. So it's good to get to people like maybe on a quarterly basis to say, what are you thinking about? And they're experiencing the healthcare system in particular throughout the year. So it's good to get the feedback as they're experiencing, you know, interacting with the system. Everyone now just a quick word from today's sponsor. One in four Americans had trouble paying a recent medical bill. Many of these people affected work for companies just like yours. Start giving your employees 100% medical coverage with Catalyze Health. I want to go a little deeper on the conjoint analysis. I'm so fascinated by these because I feel like there are, I don't know, arbitrage opportunities where something that's really low cost people might love that we're not giving them whereas other stuff that's really expensive nobody cares about yes yeah, true. Were, that's so what true. were insights there you know i know it's been a few years now but it has but i can tell you stuff that out of that. Head, it's a lot about flexibility you mm. know having flexible uh schedules this is before covid we heard a lot from people who were saying we want to be able to set oh. up a schedule. So, you know, not, not retail, obviously, because they had very set schedules, but in the corporate offices, allowing people to have flexibility to, to get their kids on and off the school bus or something like that. Mm. That was really high, which I thought was interesting. The other thing is like, you know, things like paid parental leave. Um, mm. You know, it's a subset of the population but it's mm -hmm. really valued very high for, you know, women in childbearing ages, or maybe even males who have a, a spouse in a childbearing right. age. Um, so those things are, and paid time off, just the flexibility of paid time off, not needing right. to say a sick day versus a utilizing a bank of hours and, and having my manager trust that I'm utilizing it in an effective way and not needing to answer why I'm utilizing a day or not utilizing a day. So there was a lot of that kind of feedback that we got. Um, you know, and I think we also learned some of the well-being programs. There was a there was a little bit of a, well, we are a healthcare company, and I'm talking about more on the EPA side. We're a healthcare sure. company. We need to have all of these things in place. And people really appreciated them, but I think they uh there were certain things that we spent a lot of money on that they didn't appreciate a lot of on-site services, a lot of, you know, hmm. reimbursement type of benefits. So it gave us a little bit of insight on, well, maybe we can repurpose those and still keep the core components to show we're focused on well-being and we want to support that, but we don't need to have physical therapy on-site in our corporate offices, as an example, as long as we're oh, giving them access to it and, you know, we're giving them reasonable um, out-of-pocket expense for it. People can mm. go, you know, to a virtual physical therapist or, you know, putting in a musculoskeletal sure. program helps with that, that type of thing. No, I love that. I want to talk about the merger, maybe just to set the stage. What 
what was the scope of this merger? How many people, how many dollars were coming together and what was your job? Yeah, so um, Aetna was about 50,000, a little less than 50,000 employees and CBS at the time was around 275,000 employees. So, mm. um, you know, we're talking about 325,000 after all is said and done with the two companies coming together. And um, yeah, in my role as as head of benefits, I worked really closely with my peer on the compensation side to say, we need to redesign our total rewards program um, to reflect this new company. We're no longer just an insurance company. We're no longer a retailer with a PBM or you know pharmacy. We're a new healthcare company that's trying to solve a lot of the issues in the healthcare space. So the, the program design needed to start from a fresh perspective. And we took down some of the other benefits slightly, um, you know, 401k as an example, or, you know, some of the ancillary benefits that maybe were subsidized that we made voluntary um, as a result. But we also incrementally invested $100 million in our healthcare programs to make sure that we were maintaining the healthcare is affordable to everybody. Um, so contributions were a lot lower on the retail side. But the interesting thing, Lee, is that from an actuarial value, the plans on Aetna and CBS's um, books were pretty similar, but the cost of the Aetna per employee per year was like 60% higher. So the first thing we needed to do was figure out, well, why is that? And how do we, yeah. how do we solve for that? And you know, a big part of it was contract size. You know, okay. had 50% of the employees who are in the health plan covered just themselves, where, oh, okay. Aetna, you know, Aetna skewed more towards families. Um, okay. so we were getting a lot more dependents that were on the plan. Um, mm. And then geogra heavy geographies in maybe some of the more expensive healthcare markets, as opposed to mm. CBS in every zip code and a lot of, you know, rural areas, et cetera. So, um, so that was part of it. And then just health risk overall, there were a lot more chronic conditions. And I suspect, although it isn't that I could ever like really prove this, but I think when you work for a health insurance company, you do tend to be a higher utilizer of care because that's something that you're around. Even a call center person, right. they're helping people with their health care all the time. So they're accustomed to saying I should be utilizing the healthcare system. So just yeah. bringing them together those populations and then getting the businesses, the leaders of each of these businesses to understand you know, hey, retail, the cost that you're going to get charged back is a lot higher just because we came together with Aetna. And now we're one company and we should all accept that, right? You right. know, we're, we had to think enterprise, you know, just because it was going to be a win for one part of the uh, wow. enterprise and a loss for the other, we had to say, but it's better for the enterprise as, as a whole. Right. Um, so my role was to help my team go through essentially an RFI process to select, well, which program are we going to put in or which plan design, or which vendor um, for every program. If you think about Aetna, they have medical, dental, vision, supplemental plans, um, data warehousing, well-being programs. So we had a lot of changes that we needed to make or at least evaluate which program made the most sense. So we had never, I mean, most Benefits people would say we do a couple of RFPs a year. You know, we can only handle yeah. so much. We had to do everything all in, you know, one fell swoop. The other really complicated right. fact, complicating factor, Lee, that I think people would find interesting is that CVS was on um, and still is on a June 1st plan year mm -hmm. versus calendar year. While that oh. sounds, you know, okay, what's the big deal about that? And it was very common on the retail side to have off-cycle plan years because we didn't want people in retail to be focusing on their own personal annual enrollment during the holiday season, which is the biggest. Really smart. Yeah. So that was yeah. sort of the, the background to it. But once you do it, if you think about how people, you know, think about their taxes and their HSA dollars, and when you're running it on a June 1st to May 31st basis, it does add a layer of complexity from an administration standpoint. And even oh, yeah. becomes really uh, difficult. But when you are transitioning, when you acquire a company and you want to move them from a one-one plan year to a six-one plan year, it's really complicated with high deductible health plans because you can't prorate deductibles, um, mm -hmm. and you need to run a short plan year to get people to the the same cycle as everybody else. So we had to come up right. with innovative strategies to protect people from feeling like I have to meet two deductibles in one 
calendar year or in an 18 month period. So mm. that was really um, challenging for us. We had to cut, really think out of the box and utilize the experts at Aetna to help us find solutions that wouldn't cost right. us, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, but would actually do the right thing for the employees. Oh, that's wild. When you were kind of bringing these together, what was the biggest surprise uh, for you once you brought in an actual, you know, insurance carrier health plan? I'm, I don't even know. We're, I, I suspect you were probably using Aetna beforehand, but I, yeah, I, I was going to say they were a relationship of CVS's for many years, but we had um, what they call in the industry, a market optimization strategy. So we would mm. look at every market we were in. As I said, we had people in every zip code in the United States. So right. you know, healthcare is very local. We would actually go through and do the discount analysis, which we all know is very fraught with, you know, it's not the way that you should be looking at things only, but right. unfortunately when you're managing this very large budget, that discount is pretty meaningful. So we had relationships mm -hmm. with three of the large carriers. Aetna was one of them, but we also mm -hmm. had um, pilot programs and, and we were trying things out like Imagine Health and we were doing some ACO work with the different carriers and we needed to collapse a lot of that because by the way, it may be obvious to everybody that of course, once we bought Aetna, we were gonna have to utilize Aetna as our TPA, but it wasn't a foregone conclusion immediately for me. Maybe I was just in denial. No. But what was interesting is that the other TPAs didn't want to do business with us anymore because of confidentiality. Hmm. It's just very interesting. They were losing millions of dollars, but they sort of assumed that that was what was going to happen. So, um, so yeah, hmm. I think just undoing it's mentally we were down a path of really moving towards high value networks and how do we actually get people to utilize, you know, pricing and, and transparency tools and how do we get everything to be integrated, et cetera, all the care management, customized care management that we were doing. We needed to stop that and sort of pivot towards, okay, how are we going to do that within the Aetna infrastructure? Because now it's going to overlay the entire country. Right. Yeah. How did, um, if at all, how did you work with the ACOs? Aetna has a lot of ACOs. They're probably the most advanced in that particular strategy. And I'm, I'm curious if you worked with them. We do. Yeah. And um, again, CVS had a strategy using ACOs. We actually selected, I think, three or four in different markets that we were very focused in on. And we had had them in place for a couple, a couple of years when we went through the, the Aetna acquisition Aetna, too, also used their high-performance network, but their strategy, which is what we ended up adopting for the new harmonized plan, is their APCN network. Um, they didn't adopt every market. They adopted the markets where there was, um, you know, a, a good amount of people, that it made it worth it, that the, the results, you know, shown in the data were actually very positive, that the disruption was enough that we felt like we were actually going to make some change. You know, it's mm -hmm. one thing to put in an ACO. If everybody's actually already utilizing the ACO, sure, there's going to be some, you know, management because you're putting something in that's a little bit more formal and you're measuring it. Mm -hmm. And you might be getting a deeper discount just because you're officially putting in the ACO. But if they were already utilizing that healthcare system, they're probably not going to make a lot of change. So we right. need to really evaluate that. So I think we have ACO options one of our high deductible health plans in each of those markets where we had an ACO, the richest plan, as a matter of fact, was associated with the ACO network. And the rationale there was, it's the people that have a lot of care needs that should be in the ACO. They're the ones right. that need the, the care management and the, the, you know, the collaboration um, for all of their healthcare needs. So if somebody wanted to pick the richest plan, they needed to be in the ACO network or in that APCN network, as, as Aetna calls it. So yeah. that was the strategy. And, and it actually was pretty successful. Um, but, you know, again, that's one of those markets that what you talk about tried and failed. We had to pivot a lot like, OK, well, this might not be working in this market. So let's look mm. to move to something else. That makes sense. I want to talk a little bit more here in the in the last few minutes about kind of the mission of helping to advance the triple aim. Uh, I believe that employers can have an impact on that yep. and am interested in 
your experience and your advice of what are some ways that you were able to sort of impact the way care was delivered or consumed through your health plan to try and bring better alignment of incentives? Yeah, I mean, I, it goes back to something that I said before, which is, you know, when you sit down with your vendor partners and really express some of the things that you, when you look at your data together and you see mm. people aren't utilizing high value providers, people are going outside of the network or, you know, some of the utilization management programs almost sometimes feel like it's just barriers to care. So we would get a right. lot of customer feedback on that. We would sit down and say, okay, let's think about, you know, your cl the clinical policy that might be driving some of the reasons why we do this and the actual experience. And is there some place that we can meet in the middle? Because we also realize that you remove all the utilization management rules and we know providers then tend to, you know, the, the bad actors will start to resurface and we don't want that. We don't want, you know, misuse of, of care, et cetera. So I think, Working together with your carriers on, you know, an example is, um, you know, we we'd get really frustrated that we would have women complain mm -hmm. to us that after going for a mammogram, they get a bill because they were sent to get an ultrasound for dense uh, breast tissue. And mm -hmm. it is more common than anybody realizes how many times that happens, but it's not considered preventive. So they would, it would go against the deductible. And then we would oh. have women say, Oh, I'm not getting my mammogram this year because last year I got a bill and I don't want to go through that again. Right. So I sat down with a plan and said, we need to fix this. We got to find a way. And we understand the U.S. Preventive Task Force doesn't recommend it every time, but you've got the relationship with the provider. So right. how do I understand? Well, do we educate them? Do we allow it to be covered? So we work together to come up with a strategy to figure out how do we just not put the, the member in the middle of that? So I think... It's listening to your employees or the members, and it's bringing that feedback to the people who are administering the plans to say, you're a member too. That was the other interesting thing is these people were members of this same plan, right? If I'm right. talking about Aetna, how do we actually make this better if this was you or your daughter or son or husband, et cetera? Oh. How do we actually solve for that together? And we came up with some really creative things together I think um, there's a lot of barriers in healthcare because of sharing of data. That's right. always, you know this through the HTA, you guys work really hard at trying to help some of this. That existed even within a health plan and a PBM, like the data that was being shared between, there were firewalls between mm -hmm. the businesses for obvious reasons, but we were like, okay, we get the firewall, but how do we actually utilize the data in an integrated way to actually make sure people understand I know everything I need to know about you from a utilization management standpoint. If I've got a clinical person on the phone with you, I don't want them right. to be limited to just PBM data or just medical data. So we worked really right. hard to get that. I think the, the key is to make it real and have your vendor partners understand it from their own personal perspective. I love that. That's great advice. I haven't heard anything like that before either. What, um, what could a new benefits leader do to to have the biggest impact on their population in the shortest period of time? You, you've had experience over decades in this area. If you were to give advice to a newer benefits person, what are the things that he or she should do? Yeah, I mean, I think we, we talked about the employee listening and, and serving. I think doing something to show people that you're not just you know, following the rule book and putting in the benefits that we know we need to put in to be competitive, that everybody else has that you expect when you come to work for us, but really listening to people and, and hearing, maybe they care more about, you know, the, the flexibility and the, you know, how investing in my education and in career advancement, as opposed to putting in a lot, a lot of, you know, sort of the fluff benefits. And then maybe you'll right. hear the opposite we you know the younger generation wants the fun stuff so maybe it doesn't cost a lot but you can actually put in some of the fun stuff you know one of the things we learned in the harmonization process was that a lot of things are being done locally in different facilities throughout the the company and we said we're not going to manage that we're not going to say you can't do that you should do that because a lot of 
people, it's about liking where you work and who you work with. So why shouldn't they have ice cream, you know, Sunday, uh, once, a, once a month or, you know, bringing in, um, you know, an, somebody to do an exercise class or, you know, any of those things that well-being related, but also fun and, and mental health related. So I think mm-hmm. anybody that's going into this position should really think about trying to get either find out if somebody's done surveys before and you can tap into the data that's already there or actually do perform something that's going to give you that rich and robust data. Maybe not as far as a conjoint survey. That's pretty complicated to do and mm. take some time, but um, but it can be really, really um, helpful in designing your programs. Last question that I had for you was, how do we choose a great strategy or a great program? How do we how do we find them and validate it and, and implement? Yeah, I mean, I, I use um, I use my consulting partners. We've got relationships with all of the consulting partners, and I don't think this is unique to us. But one of the things we do is we bring in multiple consultants every year at the beginning of our strategy cycle, and we do blue sky days where they just sort of throw everything out there, what they're hearing in the marketplace. Maybe some of it doesn't pertain to us, but it gets the wheels turning for the whole strategy team to start thinking about. Maybe this is something that we can do. And, and it gives us perspective on what's happening in the marketplace. And then, too, utilizing all the industry groups and your peers. So through Business Group mm-hmm. on Health or HTA, you learn what other people are doing and you leverage that information. I mean, a lot of the programs that we've put in place were because we heard that from other people at EHIR, mm-hmm. um, Business Group on Health meetings, et cetera. So I think utilizing that to help with your strategy can make sure that you're sort of staying on top of whatever the latest trends are. And there are some companies that like to, I I talked to somebody recently in the benefit space who says, we don't like to be the the first person to do it. We, you know, and we don't even like to be the fast followers. We want to lag behind a little bit and make sure everybody tests all the stuff out and make sure it works really well. So, um, so yeah, just leverage people in your network for sure. I love that. Well, I know that right now you're sort of settling into a new phase of your career. You're working with a lot of different companies that are that are trying to advance the mission and and create great programs and, and products to help people. If somebody wants to reach out to you or connect with you, whether it be on that topic or something else, what's the best way to do so? Yeah, they can do that through LinkedIn or they can actually send me an email. We can actually put it in the chat, I'm sure. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm available. Anybody who wants to uh, talk to me about uh, doing any advisory work or what I'm doing, I'm glad to chat with them about it. Oh, perfect. Well, I appreciate you for spending some time with us here today. Candice uh, Jodas, thank you so much for uh, spending some time with us on Broken Benefits. I hope uh, all of you who had the chance to listen to this uh, were able to get as much out of it as I did. And if this has been helpful for you, for you, please forward this over to uh, any of your colleagues or, or friends who might also be able to uh, take advantage of, of the learning that we had today. And thanks again for joining us on Broken Benefits. I'm really Lewis signing off. Thanks for joining us on Broken Benefits. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to our YouTube channel or on your favorite podcasting platform. Also, please share today's show with a friend or colleague. It's free to do and it helps us spread the message to as many people as possible. Until next time.